good to be back with you all. Uh, let us turn to James chapter 2. We're on chapter 2 now of the book of James. Uh, James chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. James 2, 1 through 7. Uh, and as you turn there, there's, there's a memorable scene in the Old Testament uh, it's probably at least the the verse that I want to raise for us this morning is probably something that we have heard before and, and maybe we know well. Uh, but there's this memorable scene, the prophet Samuel, he's told to go to uh, the city of Bethlehem or the town of Bethlehem. It's not really a city, uh, the town of Bethlehem and go to Jesse and his sons and offer a sacrifice. And there he will find the next king of Israel. And there was a need for another king of Israel because King Saul had disobeyed God so many times that God has, uh, God has uh, expulsed his family from being uh, king. Saul would continue to go on to be king for some time, uh, but his line would not continue on the throne. And so there was need for another king, a line of kings from another man. And Samuel goes, he does what he is told. He holds a sacrifice of the Lord. Uh, he's looking for the one that he is to anoint as king. And he sees the oldest son of Jesse. And 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 through 7 tells us, When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Right? And that last part is probably what we know, right? The, of that from 1 Samuel 16. A man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And, you know, again, if we look at King Saul as a, as a person, uh, he was outwardly what the people wanted. He was taller than everyone else. He was handsome. Uh, he was kingly material if you judge it by the standards of the world. And indeed, they thought when they got Saul, like, okay, now we're just like every other nation. We have a king just like every other nation. But God has different criteria. Uh, God is looking for something else. And today we come to our passage and we find a similar issue uh, at, at, at our um, at our consideration this morning. And there are those who are in the church that are giving priority to some who had right appearances. That is to say, the church was giving preference to those who outwardly looked, uh, looked important, looked, looked like they should get priority while denigrating the faithful brother that does not have that outward appearance. And so James here in our passage is instructing believers that the church is to be unashamedly impartial to all. The church is to be unashamedly impartial to all. So let's turn to our passage and see what God's word has to say. Out of the book of James chapter 2, starting in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And this is the word of the Lord. So one of the major themes that runs through the book of James is in various and sundry ways, is this idea of wholehearted faithfulness to God, right? That, that James wants the churches, the people of God, the believers in Christ to be wholehearted in their devotion to Christ, meaning that they don't say one thing and do another. They don't outward appear to be doing one thing and inwardly uh, believe something different. He wants both their inward 
the inward reality and the outward actions to to match up. And so he's been talking about that in different ways. He wants to them to understand what true faith entails. And right just before our passage today, right, James says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Right? So that's that's what he's that's one particular application of that which he is trying to instruct. He wants them to be wholehearted in their devotion to God. Real religion, a faith that endures, a faith that receives the crown of life, is one that walks as God walks, uh, is holy as God is holy, is loving as God loves. And so the church, empowered by the Spirit, filled with wisdom, strives for the holiness without which uh, no one will see God. And so we come to our passage today and we find this issue of partiality uh, and this is a problem that James wants to correct uh, in the church and so let's see first the command uh, the command and that's in verse one right James is writing to the church right he says my brothers or we could also the, the Greek would allow us to say my brothers and sisters right he, he is addressing the church he's not addressing non-christians he's addressing the church he says my brothers and he gives us this command uh, that deserves their attention, and it deserves our attention today. He says that they should show no partiality, or be no respecter of persons, or show no favoritism. And this, the, the way that the ESV translates this, um, this word partiality that we see here, it seems to be something of a word coined by the New Testament writers for us to understand the Hebrew uh, idea or the Hebrew word and from the Old Testament, and it's this idea of receiving the face. And so what this is, is what this word means then, right? Partiality or favoritism, respecter of persons, to receive the face is to judge by outward appearance. It's to look upon the face and say, you're someone that is good or you're someone that is evil, right? We get this idea in our own language uh, when we talk about judging a book by its cover. Right? We're judging by outward appearances. Uh, or we're taking something at face value. Isn't that interesting, right? So we, we have this in our own language today. And so he is saying, don't do that. Show no partiality. Show no favoritism. Don't be a respecter of persons. And this, bear, this verse bears further importance for us uh, in, in two ways. Uh, the first is we see here in, in the book of James the strongest uh, word about James's belief in Christ. So most of the book of James doesn't directly reference Jesus. Uh, it either does it circumspectly or it just talks about God, uh, God in general. And so here we have a declaration about Jesus, right? He says, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Um, and uh, commentators talk about there because some different translations say like the glorious Lord Jesus Christ or is it the Lord of glory what's the best way to understand that um, and uh, you, you could look at the arguments there probably the way that the ESV renders that the Lord of glory seems to to make the most sense grammatically uh, but that's an aside so what do we see here what does James state about Jesus first he calls him Lord right this is this is a sovereign. This is a king. Right? This is someone who has authority. This is the Lord. Um, and especially when we go to the Old Testament, right? what do we typically see with Lord? We're talking about God. right? So we're talking about the divine sovereign. And we see Jesus. right? That's his name. And if we were to uh, translate his name out, like what does his name mean? Uh, Yeshua means Yahweh saves. Uh, we see Christ, and that's the, the Greek of the Hebrew Messiah, right? This is the one whom the prophets and the scriptures in the Old Testament foretold about who would come. So, so we have theological content here in what James is saying, and we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory, right? A, a call to the divine nature. Um, when we think of the Lord of glory, we might think of, uh, especially come, comes to my mind, is what takes place in the Old Testament with Moses, right? Moses sees the glory of God, and he, he actually requests to see, he asks to see the glory of God. And God says to him in Exodus thirty three twenty, 20, 
but he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Right? The glory of God is such that it obliterates a person. Right? If we were to see the glory of God directly, if we were to see the face of God directly in our unglorified bodies, we would be obliterated. We, we wouldn't be able to, uh, to, to stand it. Uh, even go to Isaiah 6, for instance, and you see this when Isaiah has a vision of the Lord in the temple and the train of his coat, you know, the train of his robe fills the temple. He doesn't even, he's not even able to see the Lord directly, but when he sees this vision of God and the angels singing, what does he do? Woe is me. I am undone. I'm unraveled. I'm coming, I'm coming apart. So Isaiah didn't even see God directly. He saw him in a vision and even in that obscured and notice what he says. Um, but Moses, right? Moses sees the glory of God, but only the backside of the glory of God, because that's all that Moses could see. And when Moses comes down the mountain to see the people, right? He's glowing. His, his face actually radiates light. Why is that? Because he has been in the presence of the glory of God, and the glory of God is such that it changes even uh, Moses' face. Uh, and so he has to wear a veil. And so we have in this statement what, what um, James says here, right? Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, a statement of something of the nature of who Jesus is. James is a Christian. He believes in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the impetus behind this command, right? Show no partiality as you hold faith in Jesus, right? So all this theological content that we've just talked about, this is the impetus behind the command, right? If we hold faith in the Lord Jesus, we will show no partiality. If we say we hold faith in the Lord Jesus and we show favoritism, we are holding two contradictory things. Can't happen. You can't hold to Christ in partiality. You can't serve God and the God of self. And we may ask why that is. Well, because it is the nature of God to not show partiality. Uh, this is probably not something we often think about, but God does not show partiality. Christ Jesus doesn't show favoritism. The Spirit of God is not a respecter of persons. To our point, Romans 2, 9 through 11. Romans 2, 9 through 11. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Isn't that interesting? Paul writes that uh, to the Roman church, judgment comes upon Jew and Greek. Salvation, glory comes upon Jew and Greek. Because God doesn't show partiality. He doesn't show greater grace to the Jew and greater judgment to the Greek, right? Because especially in Paul's day, there were some who thought that, right? The, the Jewish people were God's chosen people, so certainly God shows greater grace to them, and he shows greater wrath towards, towards the Greek. No, God doesn't show partiality. Those who are outside of Christ will receive the judgment due those outside of Christ. And it doesn't matter what your pedagogue is, uh, what your... Your pedigree, uh, what your, um, who you are, how much money you have in your bank account when you die. It doesn't matter. If you are outside of Christ on the day of judgment, you will be judged as those outside of Christ. Doesn't matter. You could be the president of the United States. Doesn't matter. And so too, for those who uh, God has mercy upon on the day of judgment, if you are in Christ Jesus, you will be saved. And it doesn't matter how little is in your bank account. You may die a penniless pauper. But if you are in Christ, you are saved. Because God shows no partiality. More than that, this is something fundamental to the nature of God, and we see this in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18. 
For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, listen to this, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God is great and mighty. He is awesome. He isn't partial and doesn't take a bribe. He executes perfect, righteous justice always. He renders to each man his just deserts. And we may ask, what bearing does this have on us? Uh, well, we probably have seen someone showing favoritism, uh, or maybe we've been the beneficiary of someone showing favoritism to us, uh, someone who has been par- partial to us or partial to someone else. Maybe we see that at home with the way our parents deal with uh, our siblings, us, us and our siblings. Uh, maybe we see it at school, the way certain teachers are partial to certain students and allow them to get away with with certain infractions, whereas they're very harsh on other people who do the same infraction, right? Uh, maybe at our workplace, we see someone given prominence and priority over uh, who doesn't have the the skill or the work ethic over someone who does have skill and work ethic, uh, who is kind of relegated to second class. Uh, in the workplace. Maybe even in the church we've seen this. Uh, maybe we have seen in the church partiality or favoritism being shown. Um, some, and, and so the, here's the one context of this. Uh, recently, this past Sunday, uh, the report was released about the Southern Baptist Convention uh, the guidepost report, which was about investigating sexual abuse and the handling of it uh, within the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. And what we see uh, often in that par- report is partiality, right? Some who are leaders who have prominence and power and position are given a pass, and some who have nothing, who are poor, who, who have been uh, abused, are, shown, are denigrated and said, we don't want to listen to you and your story. Your story is not important. We don't, we don't want to listen to that. Right? So, so does partiality take place in the church on a, on a big scale? We see something like that. And we certainly see it on, on smaller scales. In our society, we certainly see partiality. Uh, when we come to the court of law, uh, we would like to think that our court system is impartial, objective, and executes justice. Uh, but we have to confess that it doesn't, right? Sometimes we see those who have power and money getting light sentences, while those who are poor and have nothing getting harsh sentences. And we say, how is this justice, right? And we should be, uh, we should be working to correct that, even in our society. Uh, and so what we must take, what we must make of partiality, of favoritism, of respecting some persons over another, is that it is ungodly, right? It is ungodly. We've established that the nature of God is impartial, right? He gives impartial judgment. And as it is true for God, it should be true for us. As it is true for the people of Israel, it should be true within the church. This is the command. Don't show partiality. Within the church, there should be no favoritism. We should not elevate some at the expense of others. And instead, there should be loving service towards one another. We are called to Christ-likeness, right? We are called to be holy as God is holy, as it says in 1 Peter. And this is one way in which we need to evaluate ourselves. We need to consider this command today. But let's continue in our passage, because James gives us an example of of what, what has been going on. Uh, and it seems to be a hypothetical example, but it's probably something that really happened. So it's a hypothetical in that he doesn't give us specific details, but it's a it's an actuality because, uh, for instance, when he says in verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man, that is a statement of, of fact, not just hypothetical fact. So uh, it's something, this is, things like these are happening in the church, and this is why he is writing this. Now, but let's see the distinction in verses 2 and 4. So secondly, this today, we're, we want to see the distinction in verses 2 and 4. And he begins this uh, situation. He says, For if a man 
wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. So there, there are two people uh, at issue here. And before we consider them, we, we do need to consider uh, what is this assembly he's talking about. He says your assembly. So, so what kind of situation are we looking at here? Uh, the, the word for assembly there is the, where we get the word synagogue from in the Greek. That's, that's how we would see it, synagogue. And so uh, those are the Jewish meanings of worship. Uh, and so there are a few ways we might understand this phrase. It could be that James is writing about a situation in which Christians are a part of a Jewish synagogue. It could be a Christian worship service. So secondly, it could be a Christian worship service. And we might be more inclined to think that this is a Christian assembly and not a Jewish assembly with Christians in it, because he does say, uh, at when a, a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. So this is probably something possessive of the, of the church. So this is a church meeting. So I don't think we can, I don't, I don't think Jewish synagogue with Christians apart is a strong, strong argument. So, but it could be a Christian worship service. So it's a Christian meeting, uh, uh, gathering there for worship of God. It could not be, it could be, so again, a Christian context. Not a worship service, though, but a judicial meeting. So a meeting in which, um, for the purposes of church discipline, or for the purposes of rendering a judgment on a, a matter of law. Uh, and so, for instance, um, we see in verse 4, he says, you have become and become judges with evil thoughts. So maybe he uses the word judges there, not in the sense that they're judging the people, but in the sense that they are um, judges they're sitting to to render some judicial verdict and it might be like that context that paul gives us in first corinthians 6 1 right when he talks about how that he is ashamed of the corinthian church because they're taking believer and believer to the court of law to the secular courts to decide something when the believers should among themselves have the ability to render a judgment on an issue because uh, he says you're going to sit down and judge angels and you're going to do that, but you can't render a civil a civil verdict. Uh, and so, uh, maybe it's something like that. Um, again, what would what should we make of this? Again, I think it's a Christian assembly because of that. You're there, your assembly. It seems indicative of that. Should we prefer a worship service or a judicial setting? Uh, in many ways, it doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't affect the conclusions that James draws. So we can hold either one. Uh, apply this example, get the principle. Uh, and so I don't think it's something that we really need to stress ourselves over. I might be probably inclined more to think of a worship service because that seems more in line with what a synagogue is, right? Especially in the Jewish setting is worship uh, and less about a judicial meeting. Uh, but there's a Christian gathering and two people enter into it. One, someone who's clearly rich and another who is clearly poor. Uh, the rich man, he's decked out, right? In our modern day, right, he has all the name brands on. Uh, he's got him some uh, some fancy um, some fancy shoes, uh, the latest and greatest. And if I were a shoe person, I could probably tell you what the top most wanted shoe is. I'm not a shoe person. I wear them. That's about my extent of involvement in in shoes. Uh, but right, he has he has the the best on he's he is digged he has got all this this finery on he's got the gold ring on uh he's got his rolex watch on uh he's got that cologne that costs more than i make in a week uh but just enough for you to catch the scent but not too much that it's overpowering he knows he knows how to wear his his cologne this guy looks like a million bucks and then we see that there's this poor man here, right? A poor man in shabby clothing, right? His, his clothes are torn. His clothes are dirty. His clothes are filthy. They have holes, uh, extra holes. And the, not like the cool kind where you have the rips in your jeans and like, you're like, man, that's, that's stylish. No, like these are just like holes because, uh, he's too poor to patch them and too poor to buy new ones. This is a, this is a guy who probably smells like the earthy outside. You know that smell when someone's been outside for a little bit and you're just like, mm, you should go take a shower, uh, right? That, that kind of smell. Uh, he looks homeless. That's, that's the kind of picture, right? We have someone who probably lives in a mansion and someone who uh, uh, 
lives in a cardboard box. Like this is the kind of picture we're given here of these two people. It is likely that these two are Christians. And some commentators suggest that maybe this is the first time that they're in the assembly. So these are new converts, first time coming into the assembly. And what does the church do? How does the church react? Well, verse 3 says, and if you pay attention, and this word pay attention there is this to give favor to. This is to notice and to give prominence and priority to. And we see how they do that, right? And he says, if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. So they, the rich man comes into the assembly and they're like, hey, you look nice. You smell great. Come come to the front. Come to the best seat. Come to... I tell you, come sit right here because the air vent blows perfectly right here. It's not too cold, not too hot. It's the best seat in the house. It has great acoustics. This is this is the spot. This is the spot of prominence, and we want you sitting in it. And you can kind of imagine that everyone in the church is fawning over him, making sure that he is comfortable, making sure that he is well taken care of. Are you thirsty? Do you need a bottle of water? We also have soda. I, we don't typically allow people to have soda in the in the assembly here, but you know, for your for you, if you want that, we'll get that for you, right? You want a snack? You want, they they are going all out, giving him attention, making sure he feels welcome. And then we see what about the other person who comes in, the the poor man in filthy clothing? He says, "While you say to the poor man, you stand over there." Or sit down at my feet. Right? So what they say to the poor man, they, they shove him into the corner. They say, there, there are other important people who need seats here, and we have limited seating capacity, so if you would just stand in the back, that would be great. Or say something like, uh, you come sit here, you can sit here on the floor, there's enough room by my feet. If you want to just sit there, uh, that would be great. Uh, you smell a little but I will allow it because we don't really have another another place for you. The church is paying attention to the rich over the poor. The church is giving special favor to the rich, not the poor. In the conclusion that James draws, we see in verse 4, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James uses a Greek way of writing, a question to indicate what the answer is given the question. So he uses a negative in the, a negation in the Greek that we are to understand that the answer is yes. So in other words, James asks a rhetorical question, and if we were to remake it into the statement of which he is saying, he is saying, you have made distinctions among yourselves, and you have become judges with evil thoughts. The undue distinction that they have made between these two is itself a judgment, right? Because they have made the distinction, they have made a judgment. They have judged that the rich man is worth more to God and the kingdom of heaven than the poor man. Not merely, right? This is not merely an issue of material, right? It's not just that the rich man is literally worth more money, but also spiritual, right? They're saying that the rich man is spiritually more important than the poor man. That in the eyes of God, God looks upon the rich man with greater grace than the poor man. They have become judges with evil thoughts because they have failed to see that ultimately only God has the right to make such a judgment. Indeed, that's where we get the verse in Matthew 7, 1. Matthew 7, 1. Judge not if you not be judged. This famous and misquoted verse is often used to mean something like, you cannot say anything about my sin, yet you can't talk bad about my sin because that's judging. And Jesus says, don't judge. That's not what Jesus means. Uh, because he goes on to say uh, in Matthew 7, 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So Jesus says there, you have to determine who the dogs are and who the pigs are. Sounds a whole lot like judgment, right? Making some kind of judgment about someone. So what, what Jesus does mean in Matthew 7, 1 is that we are not to make a spiritual judgment, a final judgment about the worth of a person in the eyes of God. 
Because ultimately, we don't know. Right? If we go back to what we opened up with out of 1 Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. We can never look at the heart. We can barely understand our own heart, let alone someone else's. All we can see is outward appearances. And again, it doesn't mean that we don't make judgments in the church. Because there are times when we have to determine whether or not somebody is a wolf or not. right? Someone who is dangerous to the flock of God. We have to determine a person by their fruits. Do they bear good fruit or bad fruit? Right In the case of church discipline, we have to determine if someone repented or not. So it's not that we don't make any judgments, but we don't make final judgments. Even in the case of church discipline, when someone is excommunicated, we're not making a final judgment about their state. We're making a present judgment about their state. Right? We're saying that as it stands right now, it doesn't appear that you are in Christ. And so uh, in order to... to uh, hold to the purity of the church, the sanctity of the church, we have to set you outside of it because we're worried, right? We have to excommunicate as an excommunion. You can't take part in communion because we're worried about your state. We're worried about your soul. And we preach to them the, the grace and the gospel of God. So James here gives us the distinction. Right? He says that the church is making a distinction. There's an undue distinction being made because they're making on the basis of outward appearance. They're looking and saying the rich man looks nice, the poor man looks bad, so the rich man must be nice and the poor man must be bad, which fails to leave the, the, to God the judgment he alone can render. And he gives us reasoning uh, why uh, this is foolishness and sinful foolishness. So let's see the reasoning in verses 5 to 7. So thirdly, today the reasoning verses five through seven and i'll just pause here and briefly say that the next passage that we have in verses eight and following actually gives us further reasoning why this issue of partiality is particularly bad Uh, but i want us to just see today the reasoning we have in our verses in five to seven and we'll look at more broadly verses eight and following uh, next week lord willing but here we have in, in kind of three different reasons here in our passage today why this um, why this par- partiality is particularly problematic. And again, in each of these verses, James is using that negation in Greek to indicate what the answer is. So he's asking a rhetorical question that we know the answer to. Uh, it's a rhetorical question we know the answer to. It's not, a rhetoric- it's not a real question that we're unsure about the answer. It's a rhetorical question we know the answer to. Uh, and so first he says, Uh, beloved brothers right so again he's talking to the church listen beloved brothers has not god chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him right he says the poors are heir of the kingdom they are rich in faith god chooses the poor right god elects the poor And these poor are probably some mix of both the material poor and the spiritually poor, the humble, the meek. Uh, Right? We could look to Luke 6.20. Luke 6.20. And this is the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, We have the Beatitudes here. Uh, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then just several verses later in verse 24, he says, But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. What's interesting, one of the aspects of Luke's gospel is that we often see this dynamic between rich and poor. In that the poor are the ones who God chooses to reveal his grace and glory to. The poor are the ones who receive uh, forgiveness of their sins. While the rich are rejected, the well-off are put aside. The, the well-off are the stupid bumbling uh, who fail to see, fail to recognize the grace and the glory of God. Uh, Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, we're given another aspect of these poor in the Beatitudes because Matthew uses a qualifier. He says in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and so uh, the poor in the spirit are those who are humble, those who have a humility. And so the conclusion seems to be uh, both these, right? The, both the material poor and the spiritually poor have something of the kingdom of heaven. That theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God rewards uh, in some aspect. 
and lest we forget the conclusion of the story of the rich young ruler. If you remember, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what else must I do to have eternal life? Good teacher, why do you call me good? There are none good except God. Uh, and in the dis- ensuing discussion, uh, Jesus says, this one thing you lack, go sell all that you have, uh, give it to the poor, and then follow me. And the rich young ruler, it says, uh, goes away sad, uh, depressed, because he was very rich. And in Mark 10, 23 to 27, uh, we have the conclusion of that story. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So the rich will enter the kingdom of God with much difficulty. And why is that? Because wealth is often a god unto itself, right? How quick we are to bow at the altar of riches. Give someone a lot of money, and what do they want? More money. And so this is a word we need to hear. And you young ones especially, you need to hear this because you have a world that tells you that the goal of your life is to amass as much wealth as you can so you can retire early and be set for life. You need it, the world says. But God says that in such wealth is much difficulty and even death. But how can they... How can we be saved? With man it is impossible. But with God all these things are possible. We shouldn't take Jesus' statement there uh, to the rich young ruler or to his disciples after the rich young ruler has left. And we shouldn't take James' statement here that only the poor are saved. That's not true. But it does seem that God especially chooses those who are poor. Poor materially, poor in spirit. God chooses whom he will, and he will have mercy on whom he will. And we must not neglect the reality within the church that God often chooses the unlikely. The ones who in His in the eyes of this world are as nothing are the ones that best show the grace and the glory of God. To show partiality then is to dishonor the poor man, right? In verse 6a there, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is to show a disregard for this one whom Christ Jesus has shed his blood for. So the first reason James gives that such partiality is sinful foolishness is that it fails to live up to God's own attitude. God chooses the poor. Why shouldn't the church? Fails to pass the test of the nature of God. And he continues in the second half of verse 6, Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? So the second reasoning he gives here is the rich are very often the ones who oppress and arrest them. It's likely in the context, right, that in the context of what what James is writing in uh, to the churches is that they are filled with poor. Because in James' day, the rich were very few. Uh, They had been increasingly amassing land and trading rights. So like they they were merchants, they were landowners, uh, and the rich were very few in number, getting more and more resources, while the poor were getting poorer. And I would say that there's probably something of our contemporary day in there, but I'll leave you that to figure out that later. The general person in the church would be poor. The general church member would be poor. And so he writes to them in kind of an astonishment about their foolishness, because he says, he says in effect, you, the poor, are being oppressed by the rich, and you would cow to the rich? You would debase yourself in an effort to affect some kind of favor from the one who dehumanizes you. You see what James is getting at? There is a perversity in licking the boots of the person who is kicking you with them. And that's what he's saying here. That's the reasoning, right? The, 
you are being oppressed by them. Why are you, why are you showing them deference? That's just, uh, kind of a, a pragmatic foolishness, right? He's not making necessarily a spiritual argument here as much as a pragmatic argument. But then verse seven, he goes back to the spiritual, especially because he says, are not, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And commentators aren't exactly sure what this blaspheming means, but it's probably something like that they are making fun of, they are abusing uh, the Christian way. So right, generally speaking, the rich who are unsaved are ones who denigrate the name of Jesus. Uh, if they're Jewish, they're not likely taking the name of God in vain, but maybe they're taking the name of Jesus in vain. Uh, and I would briefly say here about our own cultural context, uh, far too often in our culture, we hear the name of Jesus being used as a curse word. Uh, it is too often, uh, and too, too often in media that we see and, and hear and, and maybe in the people that we talk to. And the idea is something like this. Why would we show favor to those who engage in the practice of denigrating and disparaging the person of our Lord Jesus Christ? How dare we seek to ingratiate ourselves to one, uh, to ones who are opposed to our Lord? Do you see that, like the, the stupidity of that? If we can use that word, right? The stupidity of that. Uh, and again, this is not to say that the rich believer, uh, if we, if the rich man entering the assembly is a believer, it's not to say that the rich believer is doing this, but you can sure bet his rich friends are. Saying, why, why are you following that Christian way? That's so stupid. You know what they do? Uh, they, they go and they eat, say they're eating the body and blood of Christ. They're eating the body of Christ and drinking his blood. Isn't that weird? It sounds like a cult. Why are you doing that? That's stupid. And we can hear that. Uh, we can, we can see that in our own day. And so he says, why are you, why are you bowing to those who denigrate our Lord? And it's enough for James to give us the command, right? James says in verse 1, show no partiality. That's the command. It's in the scripture. It's enough for our obedience to it. But he goes on to give us, right, this other reasoning to understand the utter foolishness of engaging in such partiality when it voids good reason, not to mention the law of God. So James writes to the church because he has heard that there are instances of preference being shown in the assemblies and there are reports of the rich who are the ones who are so often causing trouble for God's people being given preference and priority over other brothers, especially the poor brother who, who isn't engaging in these sinful things, right? Who isn't engaging in these uh, issues of denigration. But the issue of, of partiality, right, of accepting someone based on their outward appearance isn't just relegated to the time of the early church. Even today, there are those who show preference uh, to those who are wealthy at the expense of those who are not in God, in and among God's people, right? This is shown in the ways in which we prefer to plant churches in rich neighborhoods over poor ones. Uh, why is it that you'll much quick, much more quickly get someone who wants to plant a church in a suburban neighborhood with big houses than in an inner city where there's a lot of poor people? I think there's some partiality going on there. And it's also shown in the ways in which we prefer to perform ministry among those who have money versus the poor, the sick, the drug addicted who don't. Why are we preferential in our ministry to the well-to-do versus those who don't have money? And it takes honest reflection on our own part because if we're honest with ourselves, uh, we prefer the better off. Because at, at certainly face value, they seem easier to deal with. When you know someone who is poor and, and addicted to drugs, that's a whole lot of effort to go into someone. But if you see a nice suburban family with 2.3 right, children, well, that seems a little bit easier to deal with. We like to, and we prefer to, uh, deal with those who look like us, talk like us, and act like us. Uh, we prefer. And that's the problem. God's word instructs us to not show partiality in any situation. We are to be unashamedly impartial. Why? Again, because God is. We could, for instance, turn to 1 Corinthians 1, 
verses 26 to 29, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the wrong, the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Do you see that? As Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, you're, you're a bunch of nothings. God would have it that way. He didn't choose the well-to-do, the wise, the strong, the ones who have everything. No, instead he chose the ones who have nothing so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Uh, we have a needed humility before our God. And it's a humility we need to carry with us in the church. It's a realization that we are better, uh, we are no better than any other brother or sister in Christ in the church. Or as Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that is uh, revolutionary to our thinking. Because in our culture, we give preference, right? We see preference. We're, we're taught to be partial. But in the church, there is no distinctions, uh, no undue distinctions. We would do well to remember that. Uh, we would do well to recognize that we are not more important than someone else. And indeed, we're to strive to, to show more honor to others and not hold it for ourselves. And again, this takes honest reflection on our part. Because how do you treat your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, if there's someone who is who has clout according to this world's standards, do you pay more attention to them? Right? Their president, uh, their, their principal, their whatever. Do you ignore the one who has not? And when it comes to the ministry of this church fellowship, will we minister to the poor and forsaken, the lost and dejected? Or will we prefer to go to the nice neighborhoods? Or will we only seek the ones we think can offer us something? God's work makes clear our missions field. God's word makes clear what preference we are to show. But what of you who don't trust in Christ? What of you who don't believe in God? God is not partial. So you may have wealth. God doesn't care. You may have nice things. God doesn't care. You may have a position in this world's eyes that everyone goes, Oh, wow, look at you. Look at, look at how far you have gotten. God doesn't care. You may have a good pedigree. You may come from a family uh, that is well-to-do and well-off. You may come from a family that believes. God doesn't care. God looks at the heart. And without the work of God in you, your heart is a rotten, wicked, and deceitful thing. God knows the truth of the evil in your heart. And you may protest and say, well, I don't, I don't have evil. I don't hold evil in my heart. But every lie you tell, every lustful thought you hold on to, every word of hate you spew tells a different story. The sins tell the truth of who you are, an evil person under the judgment of God. But Christ Jesus, he came into the world to save sinners. He came to save evil people like you. Lost people, people dead in their sins and trespasses. He did this by living a perfect life, a righteous life you could not. He died on the cross to bear the punishment of the sins of his people. And he was raised from the grave to do the defeat of sin and death. And in Christ Jesus, you can have forgiveness and life. You can have victory over sin and death. If you confess Jesus as the Son of God and your Savior, you can have eternal life. And what remains for you, friend, is to confess your sins before God, to admit the truth to God about the evilness of your ways. Repent of your sins, turn from them, and turn to God. Believe in Jesus, trust Him, trust in His work on the cross. Because God is impartial, and He will save any who call upon the name of the Lord. That's God's promise, and it's a promise you can hold on to. And when you believe, then be as God is, impartial. 
Don't show favoritism or partiality within the church. Be unashamedly impartial, giving no undue deference. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that indeed you are impartial. Uh, Father, that you did not account our status, our wealth, when you uh, chose to save us. But even before the foundation of the world, before, before you had even created us, you had determined to save us. We who believe, we who trust in Christ. Oh, Father, what a marvel it is that you have chosen us who are not wise and according to the world's standards are not strong and mighty according to the world's standards are, are, not, uh, are not the ones who are, who are at the top of the list. But, Father, you chose the things that are not uh, to show your grace, your grace and glory. Oh, Father, we pray that we ourselves here in this church fellowship, that we would be impartial. God, that we would not cow to those who have an outward appearance of, of prominence or priority. But, Father, we would serve all uh, equally, that we would love all equally, that we would give, give honor uh, and due deference to those, uh, to, to all. And if there is a brother or sister in Christ who is poor, we welcome them as much as we welcome those who are well, well off. Father, help us in this because we know the sinful inclinations of our flesh are such that we, we, would, uh, we would show partiality. God, we pray for those who don't know you. We pray for your spirit to to be upon them and to regenerate and renew them. Lord God, that they would be saved and that they too would know the glory and the grace that you have for your people. Oh, Father, help us, we pray. In the name of Christ Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen.